0: If you are able, would you stand in honor of God's word? The word today comes from Mark, chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my friend Patrick. I thank you for the gifting and the calling that you have placed on his life. I thank you for his ability to uh, divide your word with care and caution. And Lord, this morning as he steps into this pulpit, I pray that you would calm his own anxieties, that you would give to him the confidence of his calling and that you would speak truth to us through him and give us eyes to see and ears to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Brandon. Good morning,
1: church. I wanna start by saying I do have a cough, so if I'm coughing, I apologize on the front end. Um, But I want to start by asking you a question. Have you ever had an experience in your life where you just felt so much love from a particular individual or a a particular uh, event or situation. And the first memory that I could think of for me was my wedding day. And I remember standing up there with Erica um, on the stage and uh, that's not quite it yet, but I remember standing with Erica and uh, Caleb Click was officiating the wedding and uh, he, he just told us, want you guys to look out and see every single person here. He said, every person is here because they love you. And I remember just thinking about that and feeling that love. And your wedding day is like the one day that everyone has to be nice to you, right? So you just like, you just feel the, the extra bit of love. And one of the memories I will always cherish from my wedding day was my mother-son dance. So if any of you ever had the, uh, the privilege of knowing my mom, uh, she, was, she was great, but she was also, you know, she was, she was a little high maintenance on the high maintenance side. She was a little flashy, but she was so nervous about this mother-son dance. So uh, Erica and I, we were engaged for about eight months about month five or six, my mom comes up to me and was like, "Patrick, we got practice." I'm like, "Practice, Mother Sunday." It's like I've been a wedding; you just kind of move your feet around. You don't really have to move much; it's fine. But she's like, "No, we got to practice." So my uh, my aunt she she helps us practice. My aunt is also on the well fancy side, high maintenance side. So we are like ballroom dance, waltzing, practicing for two three months. And I just remember thinking, this is gonna be weird. And why it's gonna be weird is because I had picked a Backstreet Boys song (laughs) called The Perfect Fan. So we are gonna be ballroom dancing to the Backstreet Boys. And before you judge me, the song is called A Perfect Fan. It's a hit, it's really good, it's a tearjerker. So before you judge me, listen to it first. So May 1st rolls around, big day. It's an awesome day, incredible day. Bridesmaids are off doing whatever they're doing. And just remember me and my groomsmen woke up late, got breakfast, played basketball for two hours, went to Top Golf. almost met Matt Ryan. Security guard stopped me before I could actually talk to him. And I was like, that's fine. But then I just know as every minute, every hour is taking, my mom's heart is just racing. She's getting so, so nervous <laughs> about this mother-son dance. So it's finally time for a big moment. We've been practicing this. For 3 months we got this. And my mom comes down, I'm already on the dance floor. And for 2 minutes straight, she does not dance, but she does this for 2 minutes straight. And it's not because and she froze. And she was she wasn't nervous, she didn't freeze because she was nervous, but she froze because in that 2 minute span, she had so much love. For her son. She had so much love for this moment. And I, I just picture, you know, the, the 22 years of, of raising her son was all hitting her in this moment. And even though we live in this sinful and broken world, it was just such a beautiful picture for me of what a parent's love looks like for their kid. And I just remember just standing there holding my mom even in the midst of this sinful and broken world, like, man, I feel so sheltered. I feel so protected. And just realizing this is just a small, small taste of what God's love looks like for us. And I I just realized, at least for myself, my tendency is not to know, is not to feel, not to understand God's love for me in my life. My tendency is to think God looks at me and says, this is my son who's been struggling with the same sin pattern for the last 10 years. This is my daughter who I'm just so, so disappointed in. This is my son and daughter who I wish just try a little bit harder. And I think our tendency is to try and work and work and work for the approval of God. And we don't let the gospel truth ring true in our hearts. And the gospel truth is this, is that we have a sin problem. We have a fallen condition. But what we're gonna see in today's text, like Brandon just read, is this is the very, very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And what Jesus is saying is you're right. Every single one of you, you do have a sin problem and I am about to make it my problem. Jesus is connecting himself to the fallen condition. He's connecting himself to our human condition. And because Jesus does that, we can know for certain that God does not look at us and say, I am disappointed in you. I wish you worked harder, but he looks at us with confidence. We can have confidence knowing Jesus says, God says, you are my son, you are my daughter. With you, I am well pleased. So this morning, I just pray that we would be transformed by the words from Mark, that these words in in, in the book of Mark just show us the, the greatness of who Jesus is and what it is he's actually done for us. Uh, So we're going uh, three places today. Our big idea is that because of Jesus, uh, we are God's beloved with whom he is well pleased. And just two points today. The first one is that Jesus's baptism points us to the perfect obedience of Christ. The second point is that Jesus's temptation points us to the second and greater Adam. So first point, Jesus' baptism points us to the perfect obedience of Christ. We look at Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So I like to paint a picture of what's actually happening for us. And I like using the, the terminology, put some color, paint some color into our Bibles. Um, and just just recognize that Mark is, is capturing a real life event of what is actually happening. And I have, uh, I just have the, I can fall into the trap of reading my Bible and having a harder time actually articulating um, a visual of what this looks like. So what we know that is happening right now is that John the Baptist, is, he's baptizing people in the Jordan River, and he is proclaiming a baptism for the, for, or for, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And last week, in, in verse eight, we conclude that John says there is another person coming and he is so great, he is so holy, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. In his own account in John, we see John and he sees Jesus walking towards him and John says, that is him, behold the Lamb of God, who was who's coming to take away the sins of the world? So that begs the question: Why would Jesus have to get baptized if he is sinless? And what does that baptism actually symbolize? What does that represent? If Jesus is sinless, why is he getting baptized? So let's look at Matthew uh, chapter three, verse thirteen through fifteen, uh, just for. A little more clarity on what's going on. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the, Jordan, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. This is the the first kind of public thing that we are really seeing in the Gospels. And what John is saying to Jesus is like, "What, what are you doing, Jesus? I can't baptize you. I've been telling people that this is a baptism of repentance for people to, they need their sins forgiven. I just said that you are the Lamb of God who's taking away the sins of the world. This is going to confuse people. And notice what Jesus says to John. He doesn't acknowledge anything about Jesus needing to be baptized for the repentance of sins. He doesn't say anything like that. But what he says is like, John, it's it's okay. Let Let it happen because for us right now, John, you and I, we need to fulfill all righteousness. So, what does that actually mean? First, I think what this does is that Jesus is giving a, a stamp of approval to John's ministry. They're not the only ones there. Other people were getting baptized, and Jesus is connecting himself to John. And from this moment forward, everything that John's ministry does, everything that John's ministry did, will forever be linked to Jesus. Second, Jesus says, we need to fulfill all righteousness. Like, what could that possibly mean? And it means that Jesus had to submit to every single one of God's requirements. It means that Jesus truly was the Lamb of God who was taking away the sins of the world. And in order to do that, Jesus had to identify with those sins that he came to bear. Jesus needed to fully identify with our human condition. And his baptism proclaimed that he had come to take the sinner's place under God's judgment. That's what Jesus came to do on our behalf. And we see verses sprinkled throughout scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Hebrews, we see Jesus, behold, I have come to do your will. See, God has always had a plan. He has always had a plan for salvation. And it's that the word that Jesus himself would come become flesh and live in perfect obedience to the will Of the Father. And in doing so, baptism was a part of that for Jesus. So I like kind of picturing it this way. People say, you know, everyone has a weakness. Mine is I like watching really bad TV shows. Um, So there was a season in my life where I had to watch Undercover Boss. Have y'all ever seen, anyone ever seen Undercover Boss? A few of you. I don't know why. I know it's staged. I know it's weird, but something in me, I was like, I just love it when they give $20,000 to the employee at the end. Um, but, you know, I, I like picturing. If you don't know what this show is, it's essentially the, the CEO or the president of a company um, goes undercover, and then he learns what it's like to be kind of like a, a frontline employee. So, you know, picture uh, Ryan or Brandon kind of dressing up like a hip, young youth pastor and learning the ways of youth ministry or... You know, think about like a Taco Bell employee, you know, uh, CEO of Taco Bell, leaves his millionaire lifestyle, comes down to the level of his employee, and he's making the tacos, he's doing the cash register, he's the customer service cleaning the bathrooms, and the whole point of it is so that they can know what it's like to be an actual employee of Taco Bell, so they can know what it's like on the day-to-day basis of what these employees go through. And I know it's not a a perfect example, but isn't that kind of similar to what Jesus does for us? He comes to our level. He comes to identify with the human, and he demonstrates perfect humility on our behalf. And what makes it even crazier is that he's not just some CEO of Taco Bell. He's not just some president of a fast food industry but it's God, it's Jesus, God incarnate. The word that became flesh would actually leave perfection, would actually leave heaven to identify with us, to live among us, the church. That is good news for us. Another amazing thing that we see happening during this baptism is this idea of a Trinitarian Event, So I want you to listen to what Mark is actually saying and just think about, you know, the people that were there. What are they actually witnessing happening? It's so that Jesus walks out of the water and immediately the heavens are torn open. The sky is opening up and they see the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending on Jesus And if that's not crazy enough, then they hear this voice from heaven, from the skies, proclaiming some of the most beautiful words you could ever hear. It says, this is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So there's two things that I I want you to, to kind of picture here. One, it is a beautiful image of the Trinity, it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful image of the triune God actually like in action. God the Father, showering the Son with words and love, the Spirit descending upon the Son, the Son receiving the words from God, the Son receiving the Spirit. And there could be, there could be a little bit of mystery here. Could lead to some confusion, especially in this kind of in this kind of context. But I, I just want to say one thing about this: is that we, just like we sing, we serve one God, made in three Godheads: God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit. And the doctrine of the Trinity is confusing. I've seen, I've heard, and I've read people trying to, you know, make it in words so that it's more accessible and understanding to us. I've heard people say, you know, it's like. It's like liquid, you know, you can find it, or it's like water, you can find it in a liquid form um, as as a solid or as vapor. I've heard people say, you know, it's like a cherry pie. Everything is just meshed in there, they're all in one. I've seen people say, like, it's like the stars and the sun and the sky. Once a year, someone, either Brandon or Billy, will send me a YouTube video that says, that's modalism, Patrick, that's (laughs) partialism, Patrick. If you don't understand that, just YouTube it. It'll make more sense. It's two Irish guys that try and explain the, uh, the Trinity. Um, but if, if the easiest way for you to kind of understand what we're talking about here is just to look at the Westminster Confession. What does our confession actually say about the Godhead, about the Trinity? So question number six asks, how many persons are in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So I know for some of you, this might be the first time you've heard this. For some of you, this might be, you know, the thousandth time you've heard this. But this is something that I think we, actually I know is crucial to our faith is that we serve one God made in three Godheads. The second thing I want us to know is just this idea of sonship. Just this idea that Jesus is sitting under the words of love and affirmation from his Father. And how beautiful is that? And Jesus sitting under those words, it it does a few things for us. First, just like uh, Jesus kind of stamped John the Baptist's ministry, God speaking to his son does a few things. One, it actually stamps Jesus as God's very own son. It stamps Jesus as the Messiah. It stamps Jesus as the king. It stamps Jesus as our redeemer. He is God's son. Any question about who Jesus actually is can be laid to rest because we hear it from God himself. This is my son. And no higher love can be found here from God speaking to his son. This beloved word here translates to that same agape word that we saw in Romans just a few weeks ago. And as one commentator puts it, he says, God's love, the Father's love for Jesus, is an inexhaustible delight. For Jesus, an inexhaustible delight. And Christian, that is good news for every single one of us. Because of what Jesus has done for us, God looks at you with inexhaustible delight. So, the question I want you to ask yourself is this you know, what is holding you back from just sitting? and knowing that the Father might actually delight in who you are. And as I'm saying all of this, you might be wondering, like, this is all well and good, but how does this affect me at all? Like, how does this pertain to my life that Jesus got baptized? How does this pertain to my life that we serve a triune God? Like, why is this important to me at all? And I'll say this is that there is a reason that Jesus had to come down and be born of a virgin. There is a reason that Jesus had to endure life as a baby, as an infant, as a toddler, as a teenager, all the way up to this point. See, Jesus didn't just have to come and die for our sins. If that was the case, why wouldn't he have just skipped the first 33 years of his life? Just come down from heaven, quick death, we're all good. That was never God's plan. The plan was that Jesus would render full and perfect obedience to the Father for the sake of our salvation. Jesus didn't just have to come and die for our sins. Jesus had to live the perfect life that any of us, none of us ever could. See, Jesus had to identify with our brokenness. And it makes verses like Hebrews 4.15 so much sweeter. And it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus had to render perfect obedience. He had to fulfill all righteousness. It takes us to our second point, is that Jesus' temptation in the wilderness points us to the second and greater Adam. So let's keep looking at uh, Mark uh, verses 12 and 13. It says, the spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So we're seeing a few things here right after this beautiful Trinitarian moment. It says the spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness immediately. And he's there for a good bit of time. He's there for 40 days. We see Jesus is with the wild animals, and that uh, the devil is actually tempting him. And this is why uh, verses 9 through 11 are so important. This is why reading your Bible with context is so important, because we get to see the role of the Spirit in Jesus' life before this. If you just read these two verses by themselves, I think you would miss something, And I know we just went through the Trinity. Now we're gonna kind of go through the incarnation. Could be a little bit confusing. Um, And there's mystery here too. But when the Spirit descends onto Jesus, as R.C. Sproul says it, is that the Spirit is anointing the human nature of Jesus. So when we hear about Jesus's various temptations, or we hear verses like uh, Hebrews chapter 4, there's a temptation for us to think, you know, I know Jesus sympathizes with my weaknesses. I know Jesus understands what I'm going through, but he doesn't fully understand. He doesn't fully get it because he's still God. You know, He's still Jesus. He can't fully understand what I'm going through. But this is crucial for our faith. This is crucial for our salvation. And the wording here is really important too that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. Jesus does not switch back and forth from being God to being man. It's not like, oh, I'm God over here, now I'm gonna switch and be human over here. Jesus does not do that. And Jesus is not like a God and Jesus is not like a man, but Jesus is both fully God and both fully man. And because Jesus is fully man, we know that he has to set aside certain attributes of his deity. What do I mean by that? We know because he is fully man now, Jesus can't be in in two places at once anymore because he has to submit to that human nature. And there's other verses like Luke chapter 2. It's where Jesus is 12 years old. He's teaching at the temple. His parents lose him. It's kind of awkward because they lost God, but he's not really lost because he's God. But at the end of that, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. So even though he is fully God and even though he is fully man, we know that there is something where he can grow in things like wisdom. Again, can be a little bit confusing. But I say all that to say that when Jesus was in the wilderness, when Mark says Jesus was in the wilderness, it means Jesus knows that he was in the wilderness. This is a dark and desolate and dangerous and scary place. Jesus knows that. Jesus feels the hunger from fasting for 40 days. Jesus can hear the words from the devil as he's hungry in this wilderness. Again, Jesus had to identify with the human condition. So how does the actual temptation of Jesus play out in the wilderness? If you guys have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter four. We'll be here just for a few minutes. But Matthew chapter four, verses uh, three and four, says the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus responds to him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Jesus. So the way I picture this is Satan coming at Jesus and saying, Come on, Jesus. You've been fasting for 40 days. I know you're hungry, satisfy your desires, turn these stones into bread. But Jesus remains perfectly obedient. In Matthew chapter four, five and six, the devil takes Jesus to the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus responds, he will command his angels concerning you. Later goes on to say, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, come on, Jesus, jump. If you're so powerful, let's see all this power that I've heard about. Why can't you do it? Jesus remains perfectly obedient. The last one we see, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. devil says, I will give all of this to you. All the power, all the glory can be yours, Jesus. Just bow down to me. Jesus says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Come on, Jesus. Look at all these cities. Look at all this power you can have. Look at all this glory you can have. All you have to do is bow down to me. Jesus remains perfectly obedient. And I think this parallels perfectly with what we see in Genesis chapter three with Adam and Eve in the garden. See, the serpent, the devil, he likes tempting us with his words, right? And in in the garden, what do we see? The serpent goes up to Eve. Come on, Eve. Did God really say that you can't eat this fruit? That's not true. Satisfy the desires of your flesh. Just take one bite of this fruit. And Adam and Eve, they fall. And Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve, unlike those two, he's not in this lush and perfect garden. He's not in this place that has the very presence of God with them. Jesus is in a dark and desolate place in the wilderness with the wild animals, hungry after fasting for 40 days, yet he remains perfectly obedient to the Father. If you look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12, I know we were just there for like two years, but <laughs> let's look at it again. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 17. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, Church, just as sin entered the world through Adam, our condition is now a fallen one through Jesus's perfect obedience. Instead of falling short of God's perfect standard, we receive Jesus's righteousness. And I want you to recognize how Jesus responded to every attack that Satan throws his way. Every single response Jesus gives to Satan. He says, it is written. Every single attack, Jesus responds with scripture. And scripture memory is one of the most tangible and practical ways that we can fight off temptation from the enemy. But it's not just scripture memory. Remember what happened at Jesus's baptism. The Spirit descends on Jesus. Jesus is so in tune with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is so connected with the Holy Spirit in his life. Galatians 5.16 says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the heart. Jesus is very clearly walking by the Spirit here. And the Spirit is empowering Jesus. He's using the word as a tool for Jesus against the enemy. Two weeks ago, Pastor Ryan, he shared a picture of two young eighth grade men that shared the gospel with him um, at a young age. And I've never met those two eighth grade boys But just the way they changed Ryan's life, they changed my life as well, and they've changed many of your lives. And these were young eighth grade boys that were walking by the spirit, not gratifying the desires of their flesh. What do I mean by that? We've all been, at least some of us, I forgot kids are in service today, but in eighth grade, desires of the flesh, sharing our faith is scary. We've all been there. I know what the flesh was saying to those two kids, at that moment? What if Ryan thinks I'm weird for talking to him about religious stuff? What if Ryan thinks I'm sort of Jesus freak for sharing my faith? What if Ryan laughs at me because I'm sharing Jesus with him? What if this changes our friendship forever? I know the desires of the flesh were true for those eighth grade kids in that moment. But they had an active obedience to the spirit that they said, I am going to share my faith with him in this moment. And they would have no idea that 10, 15 years later, he would meet Megan in Vegas, move to India, and then eventually plant a church in Lawrenceville, Georgia, where we all call home and can worship as the family of God together. See, connection to the spirit gives us different tools to fight off the enemy. But connection to the, to the Spirit, it also furthers God's kingdom. Church, we are in a spiritual battle. The wilderness is very, very real, just like it was real in a perfect garden, just as it was real for Jesus. Just like it is real for everyone. Every single day, we are in a battle. And I want you to think, what are the moments in your life where you hear the tempter say, did God really say that? What are the moments in your life where you hear the enemy say, I know you're hungry. Satisfy the desires of your flesh. I know it's scary to share your faith. You probably should not do that. Church, the good news, the perfect news, is that Jesus has come to fully identify with us. Where Adam failed, where we failed, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus was fully obedient, and Jesus has proclaimed a victory already, and I want you, and I need you to remember this, that the Father wanted Jesus to begin his ministry remembering whose he was. He wanted Jesus to remember who he belonged to. Before Jesus takes one step into the wilderness, The last thing he hears from the father is you are my son. With you, I am well pleased. Church, I pray that that is the gospel truth that you remember today. I pray that that is the gospel truth you place in your heart. That you do not belong to the enemy, but you belong to the Father who is well pleased with you because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Let's pray.
0: Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.